If you have your Bible, please open up to John chapter 7. It's an amazing thing to me that God's grace is so powerful that it can cover all of our sin. And then He gives it to us freely through Christ. John chapter 7, picking up where we left off last week at verse 24. Jesus said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, where we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am? You cannot come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us the answer to this question. That we might know Christ. And in knowing Christ, be with him and with you and with the Holy Spirit for all eternity. We ask, Father, that you would crush our pride this morning. We know, Lord, that our flesh revels in self-glory that we dismiss you and your majesty, that we might rise ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would be gracious by humbling us this morning in light of this passage. Show us Christ, that we might see him clearly. And in so doing, Lord, we will be humbled. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, my beloved. John chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 36, and it is, a, it is a particularly difficult passage for me to preach because the one thing that kept coming up again and again in my studies was pride. And pride is something that I struggle with. No one that I know likes to be wrong. Certainly no one likes to admit that they are wrong. As a young Christian, I remember clearly one of the most difficult teachings that came to my attention that I had to accept that I did not like was confession and repentance. That teaching that when you did sin against someone, you would go to them and you would say, please forgive me, I have sinned, I was wrong. Those words do not roll off my tongue well. And then the longer I walked with Christ, I realized it was almost equally, if not more so difficult, to actually say to someone who sought my forgiveness, I forgive you. 
Because as long as I don't forgive someone, then I, I have them in debt and I can hold it over them, right? What I realized then and I continue to realize now is humility is a fruit of the Spirit and it is hard. Being humble in light of Scripture is hard. And only through the humiliation of Christ on the cross that do we have any hope as a people set apart for God's glory of our pride being decimated and us truly walking in humility in Christ. When Jesus enters the temple here at the Feast of Tabernacle in John chapter 7, he is six months away from his humiliation on the cross. Six months from his arrest, his persecution, his horrible beating, his crucifixion and his death. And, and you will see now, from chapter 7 all the way through his crucifixion, you will see the hostility towards Jesus Christ increase. We shouldn't be surprised. We started off this study in John chapter 1, verse 11. The apostle says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He was not received. If you remember last week, Christ came to Jerusalem halfway through, enters the temple halfway through the feast, and he began to teach. And he had been away for over a year in Galilee, engaged in the Galilean ministry where he was teaching and healing and doing great signs and great wonders. But he returned to the epicenter of Jewish culture. He goes back to Jerusalem and he goes directly to the temple and he begins to teach the gospel of grace. And as he does, as he declares the glories of his father and that he is the Messiah, a stir begins. And we saw from last week, his brothers didn't believe him. The people don't believe him. The Jewish leaders don't believe him. They all reject his teaching. He's saying that I am the Messiah, I am the Savior, and no one believes him. And grievously, their judgment, it was not based upon truth. It wasn't based upon sound judgment. It wasn't even based upon their own scriptures. If you remember from chapter 5, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures, he says, testify about me. Their rejection was a product of pride. Pride that made them ignorant. Pride that made them hostile. And as we see the end of this chapter, the end of this passage, pride that shuts them out of heaven forever. Augustine defined pride like this. He said, the love of one's own excellence. That resonated with me. The love of one's own excellence. Webster says, it's an unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority. Talents, beauty, wealth, rank, knowledge, and you can add whatever else you want to it. And it's a hatred of what is beneath or unworthy. Now we know that pride, pride started this whole fall off, right? Going all the way back to the beginning in the garden. Pride compelled Adam and Eve to not be satisfied with their position in God. And they wanted to be like God, so they ate that fruit. And in so doing, they were cast out of the presence of God and they lost His glory. And ever since, every single man without the glory of God is glory starved and pride is there trying to get, trying to receive, trying to elevate ourselves because we don't have the glory of God. And we'll see from this passage that pride compels us even when The evidence is right before us. Even when Christ is right there, it compels us to need to be right even when we're wrong. It's a horrible thing. And I don't say any of this to you without great conviction in my own heart because I know the pride that's still in my heart. 
The same pride that infects the hearts of, and minds of millions of people today. Millions who reject Jesus Christ because of their pride. Millions in the church who stumble in their walk with Christ because of pride. And so by God's grace this morning, and it will take His grace to overcome our pride that we might actually hear what He has to say. By God's grace this morning, we will see that the hostility against Christ is a result of their pride. And if the Holy Spirit is willing, and I pray that He is, He will reveal to us the pride in our own life. We don't want to sit here and we don't want to, we don't want to judge the Pharisees and judge the Sadducees and judge those, those people in Jerusalem who just didn't get it and we're so much smarter. Otherwise, we will we'll perish on these words. I want us to see pride's ignorance. I want us to see pride's hatred. And I want us to see pride's end. By God's grace this morning, pride's ignorance. The old adage, ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise, Most of you probably have heard that before, made popular by the 18th century poet Thomas Gray. They could be some of the most condemning and hateful words ever made into popular culture. Ignorance is not bliss. Jesus said in verse 24, look with me, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He's saying, do not judge ignorantly. Do not judge me. Do not judge my mission. Do not judge my father based upon your prideful ignorance, because that's what they were doing. He said, if you're going to judge me, then judge me accordingly. Judge me according to what I've said. Judge me according to what I've done. Better yet, he says, judge me according to your own scriptures. Open up the books, get out the parchments, and tell me if they don't point to me. Judge rightly, not by foolish, ignorant appearances. And it's a rebuke, but I want you to see, it is a rebuke that's commingled with a plea. He's pleading with them because they're rejecting him. And if they reject him, they reject the Father. And that means there's no life. And so he's pleading with them to stop their unbelief and, and, and quench their, their, their dissatisfaction, their glory-starved hearts with truth. He's saying, see me. Just see me clearly for who I really am. Their response It's grievous, but it's not surprising at this point. I don't think any of us are surprised. Look at verse 25. 25 and following, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Verse 27, But but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. A lot of knowing and a lot of not knowing and a lot of confusion in that passage. The pilgrims, many of the Jewish pilgrims who were there, when Jesus said in verse 19, why do you seek to kill me? They said, what are you, demon-possessed? Who's trying to kill you? I mean, those who had come from afar, they had no idea the plans of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the Jerusalemites, those who lived in Jerusalem and surrounding Jerusalem, they knew. They had already planned the religious leaders had already planned to execute Christ. So they say, look, look at verse 26. Here he is, speaking openly. Some translations say, speaking boldly. In other words, Christ is holding nothing back. Here he is, speaking openly, and they, the religious leaders, they say nothing to him. And they're thinking, well, what gives here? I mean, here he is. He's in the temple. He's teaching. Why aren't they coming to get him? Why aren't they coming to arrest him? Do they believe him? Do they know something we don't know? And look at how pride comes up. Are they not telling us something? 
Are we in the dark? Pride hates being in the dark, right? Pride always needs to be center stage. And that means pride always has to be in the know. And if pride doesn't know something, then pride's on the outside looking in and pride gets angry. And so they say, maybe they're not telling us. But I want you to notice, the question is posed, is this the Christ? And then it's completely vacated. In fact, in the Greek, this doesn't come across, but it implies a no answer. And they immediately come to their own conclusion based upon prideful ignorance. Look at verse 27. They say, no, that can't be right. We know, but we know where this man comes from. And here's their conclusion. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They had forgotten about the teaching. They had forgotten about all the miracles. They had forgotten the fact that this man had made an incredible impact upon the Galileans and in Jerusalem. And instead, what do they do? They judge Jesus. They judge Jesus based upon two false ideas, two faulty assumptions. Number one, that they know where he's from, and they don't know where he's from. They're wrong. Number two, they believe that when the Christ comes, they're not going to know where he's from. And that's a lie too. So two faulty assumptions lead them in their pride to make the worst decision, the worst judgment ever, and that's to not see Jesus Christ as the Savior. At that time, many people believed that when the, when the Jewish Messiah would come, that he was going to come in some supernatural and sudden fashion, that he was just going to appear in the temple. One of the verses they draw from is Malachi 3.1, where it says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Look at verse 27 again. It says, When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from, but we know where this man comes from. He's a Nazarene. Mary's his mom. Joseph is his father. We know his brothers. We know him. So because we know where he comes from and we foolishly believe that when the Messiah comes, we won't know his origin, this cannot be the Messiah. And so they reject him in ignorance. What makes their ignorance even more grievous is the religious leaders, they did know. They knew better. They knew the time and they knew the place. You say, well, how do we know that? You remember King Herod? King Herod, go back 30 years from this moment of this writing. King Herod heard about the Christ being born, and he wants the Christ dead. So what does he do? He calls the teachers, and he calls the scribes, and he says, he brings them into the palace, and he says, when and where will the Christ be born? And they say this to him from Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they knew. The leaders knew, and some of the people knew, but many did not. They could have revealed it. They could have taught it. You know, they they actually could have gone into, I don't know if you know this, they could have gone into the temple, because in the temple they have the record of the people, and they could have gone in. They said, where was Jesus, son of Joseph, born? It's recorded. And they just said, oh, he was born in Bethlehem. So they could have gotten this information as well. He was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, who just so happened to both be descendants of David. But the religious leaders either remained willfully ignorant, they certainly did not teach the people, and in both situations, pride ruined them because they adjudicated Christ, they judged Christ wrongly. So what did our Lord, how did he respond to this? Look at verse 28. 
How did he respond? It says, so Jesus proclaimed. That word in the Greek, it's a strong word. It means to cry out. He cries out in response to what they said. He cries out as he taught in the temple. Listen, he says, you know me, and you know where I come from, and the question mark in the ESV is good there. He's saying it ironically, like, you have no idea who I am. He says, but I have, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know, speaking of the Father. And then he says in verse 29, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. It is a statement of categorical significance. Christ saying, I was sent by the Father. I am the Son of God. Period. In John chapter 8, verse 19, we'll get to this in a few weeks. Jesus says to them, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So when he makes the statement, you know me and you know where I come from, in verse 28, he's saying it ironically. He's saying essentially, you think you know me, you think you know where I'm from, you think you know my parents, saying, but you don't know me at all. You don't know where I'm from, and you don't know my true father, and you don't even know why I'm here. I'm I'm trying to tell you, he says again and again, I'm trying to tell you, but you do not believe. You will not believe. Their ignorant pride would not allow them to believe. They were blinded. And he declares in verse 28, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. It's an amazing statement. These are Jews who profess to know and worship Yahweh. And he's saying, you don't even know who Yahweh is. And if the Jews didn't know, who did know? He's saying, you refuse to believe me based upon some superficial and artificial and poorly rendered scripture. And therefore, You will not believe that God sent me. You will not believe that the God who sent me is the true God. And you will not believe and know the one that you must. And that is his heavenly father. It was as God said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.8, those who handle the law did not know me. Or maybe better said in Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed. Why? For a lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed because they don't know me. And this is a willful ignorance. This is a vincible ignorance. We can know God through Jesus Christ. And we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, know God through His written word. We can, as they could. They could have, and they should have, but they refused to know. He says in verse 29, I know Him, speaking of the Father, I come from Him, and He sent me. Now, that's true. If Jesus Christ knows the Father and Jesus Christ came from the Father, then they would have been wise to listen to Jesus Christ. They'd have said, well, we, maybe we don't know, but you do, so we will listen to you. But they refuse. They did not listen. Many of us do not listen to Jesus Christ. How many, my beloved, how many today reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior based upon prideful ignorance? How many people in your mission field have said things to you about Jesus Christ or God or the Bible or church and been completely wrong? Christianity is anti-intellectual. That's what I used to hear a lot in the academic circles. Christianity is judgmental and intolerant, and therefore I will not believe because I'm not judgmental and I'm not intolerant, which is a judgmental statement. 
The biblical accounts of Jesus are not reliable because they were written so long after his actual life. Or worse yet, Jesus Christ never existed. That's a tough one historically. God becoming a man is not logical and I'm logical, therefore that cannot be true. The Bible is full of contradictions and therefore unreliable. Most people have never read the Bible and therefore they have no idea what contradictions they speak of. If God were a good God, you've heard this one, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? That's a good question, by the way. Not a good reason to reject God. The Bible and science contradict each other. All Christians I know are hypocrites, and therefore Christianity must be false. There are so many translations of the Bible, you don't know what they really say. My beloved, all of these conclusions are wrong. Every single one is based upon prideful ignorance, without exception. And these are just a few. Now, what's so grievous is not, these are statements made by people who do not know God. This should not surprise us. What is more grievous to me are the statements of prideful ignorance that take place in the context of God's church. Because we ought to know. We can know. Paul was right when he said in Romans 10 too, many of us have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. We have all this zeal and all this passion, and it's such an issue today in the church. It's such an issue in younger evangelical churches. Lots of youth, lots of energy, lots of passion, and no knowledge. How many of us profess? How many of us, how many in the church today profess Christ based upon a false gospel or have exchanged a fundamental Christian teaching for a lie, for, for a myth. I'll give you a few and then I'll close on this point. Christianity is a personal relationship with God and therefore you can interpret the Bible any way you want. I don't need to know God's word to know God. I don't know God other than through God's word. If you say with your mouth the sinner's prayer, you will be saved. Probably one of the greater lies today. Here's one just recently talking to a sister in Christ. A loving God would never send anyone to hell, and because God is love, there can be no hell. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. You've heard that one. The gospel of grace is good, but you still have to do many good works to be saved. The gospel of grace is sufficient, and therefore you can continue in willful, unrepentant sin and still be saved. And of course, that list is long too. Prideful ignorance inside the church or outside the church, it is always self-destructive, without exception. And the good news that I want you to hear this morning is that it can be overcome by Christ by the gospel, by the Holy Spirit. This state that we struggle with here as believers in pride, God has the power to overcome that. God can humble you, pride man, prideful man and prideful woman. He can, and he desires to. But if you refuse to listen to Christ as they did, you must know that it doesn't stop with prideful ignorance. It moves to hatred. Ignorance moves to hatred. I want to show you the next point here. Two, pride's hatred. Verse 30 and following. 
So they, these are all the people that have been listening to him as he declares the glories of God and the truth of him being the Messiah. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So what... What is their response to Jesus crying out from the temple? He's crying out saying, I am he. My father sent me. My father sent me to redeem you. He cries this out. You can almost imagine in tears of the broken heart that they might hear and they might believe. What is their response to him? They want to arrest him. They want to arrest truth. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And their answer to truth is arrest the truth, bind the truth, kill the truth. Prideful ignorance always seeks to bind and arrest and destroy truth. And in this case, it's truth himself. It is the person. Now, some in they were likely the Galileans. They're trying to reason through this. Look at verse 31. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to misunderstand this. It says, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Their faith is faulty. It's based upon the signs. They're not saying we believe in the person. And they're not saying we believe in his teachings. They're saying we like the signs. So this goes back to what we saw earlier in Judea and then certainly throughout the Galilean ministry. Remember at the end? What happened at the end? When they no longer liked him saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, they said, who can bear this? And they left. This is the type of belief here. And we know that because in the end, they all cry for his crucifixion. In other words, I don't want you to be fooled. 31 is not a saving faith. It's not a saving faith. Even the Pharisees, though, and they should have known. Of all people, they should have known because they knew the word of God. And and Jesus was fulfilling that. He was fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. They should have known. But look at their response in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things. What were they muttering? Maybe this is the Christ. They heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So instead of them embracing the truth and submitting to God, they arrest him, or they want to arrest him, and they want to kill him. That's a bad way, my beloved, to approach truth, to try to arrest it and destroy it. We want our lives to align with what is true, not to fight against it. There's something really interesting here, and it's subtle, but I want you to pick up on it. The Pharisees partner with the chief priests. The chief priests were the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other. They hated each other. The Sadducees, they were were in charge of maintaining the temple. Uh, They were were much more political and much more um, aligned with Rome than the Pharisees. And not only that, they, in fact, they, they only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and rejected the rest of it, and they rejected the whole idea of the resurrection. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were enemies until Christ comes on scene. We have another old adage that plays perfectly, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You've heard that one as well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so Jesus becomes their common enemy. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees who hate each other, they get together And they say, let's kill this man. Let's arrest this man. And they send out the temple guard, the temple police, to try to arrest him. But we're told in verse 30, because his hour had not yet come, they could not 
There's so much speculation in the commentaries on how that happened. Maybe it was because of the crowds. Maybe he slipped away. What do we know? He was unable to be arrested. And we know that was God. Because God is sovereign. And God was in complete control of every moment of Jesus' life. Not only his life, but the manner and timing of his death. It would be six more months. He had six more months of ministry. And then he would come into Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover. And they would arrest him. And they would persecute him. And they would kill him. Not yet. Time had not yet come. It is imperative that we know the universal response of ignorant pride is hatred. You stay in a state of prideful ignorance and it will lead to hatred and animosity toward the truth. It must. Their solution to Jesus, arrest him and put him to death. Now, I know many of us, we hear this and we find that We find that an extreme response. We find it violent and some gruesome in light of the cross. But how often, I will ask you, my beloved, because this is what I asked myself this week, how often do we do the exact same thing? How often do we arrest the Word of God and seek to put it to death? How often in our studies or listening to a sermon or teaching or preaching rather than hearing the word of God and submitting to the word of God in love, how many of us try to put our hands around it and grab it and hold it and put it away? We don't like what it says. Rather than seeing by the power of the Holy Spirit the glorious truth of God revealed in his word and submitting to that word, we do everything we can to arrest and execute it. Because if we don't, the word will put our sin to death. The word will put our pride to death. And we can't, pride can't have that. Pride must survive, so it will arrest truth every time. That means if if I, for example, want to maintain a particular belief, let's say as a man, I want want to maintain a belief that I, I, I don't have to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I don't have to sacrifice for my wife or pray for my wife or teach my wife the word of God or grow her to love Jesus. I don't have to do that. I can just be selfish and in return and live my life as I want to live. Say, I want to hold on to that belief. Or let's say as a man, as a father, I, I don't want to raise my children to know and love to serve the Lord. I don't want to do that. I want to be their friend. I want to be their pal. What happens when I do that? I ruin them. I ruin the marriage. I ruin my children. But how do I maintain that? It's, I just got to keep away from the word of God. I can't go to Ephesians chapter 5, which tells me how to live as a godly husband or a godly father. I have to put this away. I have to put it behind bars. And we are, our sin and our pride is wildly creative. I mean, we are really good at arresting the word of God. Some of our greatest weapons, I would say probably the greatest weapon, is you just don't open it. Right? I hope there's some conviction here. Listen. Pride keeps you from God. So what do we do? We we say, you know what? I'm just not going to go to the Word. I'm not going to open the Bible. I'm going to leave it on my nightstand. I'll leave it on my bookshelf. I'll only open it when the pastor tells me to on Sunday, and then I'll close it again. What have you done? You've arrested truth. You've bound it in a book, on a shelf, covered with dust. It's so convenient. It enables us to hold on to whatever we want to believe. True and false. And it's all commingled. Some of the things are good, some are not. And we can just hold on to them because there's nothing telling us otherwise. There's no conviction from the word of God. There's no truth, truth being spoken into our lives. We're so good at seeing truth and applying it to others. So we'll listen to a sermon like this and we say, oh yeah, pastor, I know lots of pride. 
in lots of people. You might even have a list for them. We're so good, even when we read the Word of God, we're thinking of other people, and you'll say to yourself, I should send this to them. Before that thought comes, ask yourself, has it been sent to you first? It's an amazing thing. Just, I, I think I'm going to give this passage to this sister. Okay. Is there a plank in your eye that it needs to deal with first? If you're always thinking about the passages that need to go to people, that's a way of arresting the Word of God. When you come into a public arena like this where there's preaching and teaching, the, the easiest way, the most convenient way to arrest the Word of God is just to doze off. Let your mind wander. You know, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm having what for dinner tonight? What is that? Yeah. I must confess and I must repent and I must believe. Oh, man, I have so much work tomorrow. And their minds do that. Right? And how do we arrest the Word of God? We just ignore the Word of God. Or we're even, we're, we even take the Word preached and we listen to the parts that we like Talk to me about God's love. Talk to me about the joy. Talk to me about heaven, because I can't wait to be with him. But then when we start talking about sin, or confession, or repentance, or judgment, or hell, we go, la, 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 la. And then we hear this, you know, you, you tune back in and you hear, sin, oh, la, 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 he's still talking about that. And I know you don't do that, maybe not even consciously, but subconsciously. There are times, saints, when at the end of the sermon, somebody will talk about something and it's a small illustration or a small little point and sometimes having nothing to do with the sermon I want to say yeah but did you hear what Christ said did you hear what Christ said no not really but I remember the golf pen in the green folder Mm. Mm. we keep the word behind bars I think most effectively by using the word of God to arrest the word of God That's how evangelicals are most creative. We take the Word of God and we use it to arrest the Word of God. What do I mean? One of the things that I've seen in the evangelical church today is we take something like God and His love and God and His justice and we pit them against each other. And somehow if God's going to be just, He can't be loving. If He's going to be loving, He can't be just. So we have to separate them. And we use the Word of God to arrest the Word of God and take entire pieces of truth out of our understanding of Christianity. In fact, I would say that today, my beloved, the love of God, not only the love in general, the culture, they don't get it. But I would say even in the context of the church, love is woefully misunderstood. Woefully misunderstood. And so what we try to do is we, we try to say, all right, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that God is love, then I'm not going to listen to his holiness. I'm not going to listen to his hatred for sin. Because if God is love, he cannot hate. False deduction. I'm going to forsake the idea of the great day of judgment to come. We take verses like 2 Peter 3.19, listen, where it says that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Or 1 Timothy 2, four, where it said God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Those are true statements. But we will take that and we'll say, all right, out of context, that must mean what? That God's going to save everyone. That must mean what it says. God is love. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He said that. He desires all to be saved. He said that. And therefore, God must not want anyone to go. And therefore, there will be no judgment. There will be no punishment. There will be no hell. And we use the word of God to arrest the word of God. That's wicked. And we do it all the time. My beloved, if you are using the word of God against the word of God, 
or you believe that there are passages that are in contradiction, I'm pretty sure, after studying this thing now for 20 years straight, that you're probably wrong, and the Word of God is right. So you don't understand it correctly. Don't be prideful. Don't use the Word of God to arrest the Word of God that you might not hear truth. Humble yourself and say, you know what? I must be wrong. God's right. I'm not. Pride, my beloved, makes it impossible to know God. Look at verse 28 again. Jesus said, I I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. They don't know him because they're prideful. They don't know him because their ignorance has turned to hatred, and the very one, they're at the Feast of Tabernacles, and the very one they are praising for sustaining them in the desert years and for providing this wonderful harvest and this wonderful crop, the very one they're saying they worship, they say they love, Jesus said, you don't know him. You don't know him at all. You're worshiping a false god. Pride makes it impossible for us to know God. It makes it impossible. Our ignorance will lead to hatred and we will. We'll hate God, we'll hate his law, we'll hate his son, even in church. But to reject God, to reject the true God, to not know your creator, it is the most hateful act of any created thing. No created being can say, you're not real, or I deny you, or I deny who you really are, and not be through and through hateful. So by God's grace, we've seen pride's ignorance, we've seen its hatred, and I want to look at one last point here and I'll close. I want to see its end, and I want to see the way of salvation. You can't stay in a prideful state and be saved. Last point. You still with me? Pride's end. Verse 33 and following. Verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me. And you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus knows that his arrest is imminent. He's going to be arrested. Not at this moment. But he knows that his arrest is coming and his death is coming. And so he's revealing to them. They don't understand it, but they will later. He's revealing to them that they will not join him because they reject him. Because they deny that he is the Christ, they cannot come to where he is going. And where he is going, they want to go. When he says in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. He's not talking about a temporary separation here. In a matter of months, they're going to get their wish. They want him arrested. They want him dead. And he surrenders himself. He does. Jesus Christ comes and he allows the feast of Passover. He allows himself to be arrested. He allows for the trial. He allows for the false accusations. He allows himself to be beaten to a place where he's unrecognizable as a human being. He allows himself to be carried out to Calvary and and nailed to a cross. He allows himself to die and be buried. And then, by the power of God and the Holy Spirit and the Father himself, he is raised from the dead and he, he, he spends 40 days in resurrected form showing himself to over 500 people and then we know that he ascends and, and this, this is an ascension passage but that's not its focal point. He's saying, listen, I'm going to go 
to the Father, and the Father's going to seat me at his right hand, and he's going to give me all power in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and I'm going to be the king of kings. I'm going to be with my Father in heaven. His death and his resurrection, Jesus is saying, will satisfy the punishment of all who repent and believe. He's saying, I'm going to complete a work that's going to be my way to the Father and your way to the Father. This work that he's going to do, going into the presence of God, the place where there will be no more sin and no more pride and no more ignorance and no more hatred, no more rebellion, that place where God will commune with his people and his people will know him, being loved by him and loving him in return. And Jesus is saying, this is where I'm going. And I'm offering it to you freely to come with me. But you must repent and believe. And that's why he says in verse 34, verse 34, Martin Luther said, these words are so terrible, I do not like to read them. Any passages like that for you? You say, well, what's so terrible about this? Maybe I don't understand. Look at verse 34 again. Jesus said, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, where I am, where I am, you cannot, no ability, no power, come. He's not referring about his temporary removal. He is saying, essentially, you're going to be shut out of heaven. You're going to be shut out. In John chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus said to his disciples, now here's the difference, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterwards. Why? Because they're saved. But what he's saying here is that if you reject me, Christ is saying, listen, saints. Christ is saying, if you reject me, you reject my testimony, you reject my Father. And if you reject my Father, you cannot be with me, with my Father, forever. You cannot come to where I am going. And this should have resonated with them. There were so many passages. Amos 8 In Amos chapter 8, the prophet said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. No wonder Luther said he hated reading these words. In John chapter 8, Christ makes it so clear. He says to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. I'm going away. You will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Saints, that is pride's end. It may start as ignorance. It may move to hatred. But its end is total destruction. Its end is missing heaven. It's missing God. It speaks plainly to hell itself. Because that is the end of pride. Prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 13, 11, God speaking, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for iniquity. Listen to this. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. That alone, that single verse alone is sufficient cause to cause everyone who professes Christ to humble himself before the Lord. Their response is so grievous, they just heap coals on their head Look at their response. It is, it's contemptuous. It sounds, it sounds in the translation in the English like they're just inquiring. It's not. In the Greek, it is contemptuous language. They're ridiculing him. Look at verse 35. The Jews said to one another, here's the tone. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? 
Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? In other words, they're saying this. Since he's failed here to convince us that he's the Messiah, is he going to leave Jerusalem and go throughout the empire and find the Jews and find the synagogues and try to teach them? And then when he fails with them, will he then go and teach the Greeks, the pagans, the dogs, and try to show them that he's the Messiah? Will he fail like that too? The statement is monumentally grievous and is simultaneously glorious because it's our good news. It's the good news. There's not even a little bit of irony here. The Apostle John wrote it with much irony because what do we know? In a matter of years, what was going to happen in the New Testament church? The New Testament church was going to be scattered by persecution and the gospel of grace was going to go out to the world, out to the Greeks, out to the diaspora, those Jews who were throughout the empire. And what would happen? What would happen? Many people would hear the gospel, they would repent, and they would believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so they say this, ridiculing him and condemning him, and their very words are utterly prophetic. Their blindness, Israel's blindness, would propel the gospel out to the world, to here, to San Jose, to you. Paul made it clear in Romans 11.11, he said, Through there, the Jews trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their pride, their rejection of Jesus Christ moved it out. And so, if you know Christ, if you know Christ by His grace, you don't want to respond pridefully like they did. Their response is so painful to read, as Luther said, because it means the end of destruction. Instead, by grace, we hear the word of God and the truth proclaimed and we receive him as Lord. We hear him speak and we know it's truth and we don't have our flesh overcome that, but we have truth overcome our flesh and we submit joyfully to God. In Hebrews chapter 4, Here's a passage that applies for the prideful heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Since it still remains for some to enter his rest, that since there's still some who are going to be saved, and maybe you, maybe it's you. And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, that's the Jews. Verse 7, God again set a day calling it today, today, listen, If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Saved or unsaved. If you hear him today, don't harden your heart. Don't let pride get the best of you. Do not harden Christ by rejecting him. The hope of the gospel of grace is revealed to us in Christ himself. Christ says, the Father sent me. This is the message he gave to die for your sins. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near and let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will, listen to this, this is why the song preceded the sermon, he will abundantly Pardon, abundantly pardon. Did you hear that? Prideful sinner, did you hear that good news? 
it is glorious news because it means that someone like me who is so filled with pride and has been from day one can come before God and seek forgiveness and God will humble me and God will forgive me and if he will forgive a prideful sinner like me, he will you too. I pray you'll come before God this morning and be done with pride. Be done with it. It is so ugly. Aren't you tired of it? Aren't you tired of the posturing? Aren't you tired of the boasting? Aren't you trying to be someone that you're not? You're a sinner, saved by grace, glorious because of Christ. Pride's exhausting. Always trying to make sure that someone has the right perception and the right understanding that they think like this and they don't think like this. I beseech you in Christ to do away with your pride that fuels the ignorance that causes you to believe things that are not true and reject things that are. Do away with the pride that leads to hatred. And yes, a hatred for the Word of God, a hatred for Christ, a hatred for those saved, a hatred for His church. Kill the pride by His grace. God is not a respecter of men. If He did not spare the Jews because of their prideful ignorance and their hatred, He will not spare you apart from Jesus Christ. Those who came from the line of Abraham and David, they were not spared, nor will you be if you reject Jesus Christ. Listen to the plea from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. Paul says, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, listen to this, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, This is the favorable time. This is the day of salvation. And that window will close when Christ comes again. So what do we get from this? I want want us all to recognize the only way to overcome our prideful hearts is the gospel of grace. It's Christ. Well, let me step back. You got to know that you're filled with pride. Do you know that? Even the most humble of you, do you know that there's still so much pride in your life? How easy is it for you to go and seek forgiveness when you've sinned against someone? How easy is it for that, those words, I forgive you, to roll off your tongue? How broken are you before the Lord daily? You struggle with pride. We all do. Therefore, what? The gospel of grace, Jesus Christ, His power, and the Holy Spirit can decimate it, and it can. I've met truly humble people in the Lord, but they are so few. And when you're in their presence, you're like, what happened to this person? Who is this person? They've been humbled by God. Their pride has been destroyed. We must recognize that. We must come to Christ. We must seek forgiveness. We must have God humble us. And then we must walk daily in His Spirit. In His Spirit. The longer I minister to people, especially those people in conflict, the more I realize it's pride, it's pride. Whatever the issue is, you can take that issue, and when you get down to it, it's always pride, always. And at first in my ministry, I was shocked. I'm like, pride again, pride again. Now it's like, okay, well, let's just deal with the pride. Why? Because that's always it. The sage was right when he said, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. It's always pride first. 
Pride is the universal human problem, and everyone suffers from it to one degree or another. The Bible says, Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's terrifying. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he said, he will not go unpunished. But the glorious thing is, God doesn't give us this message to go, oh, look, I'm going to punish you. He doesn't. He gives us this message that we might turn and be restored and made humble. Made humble. Psalm 1827. For you save a humble people. And that is the hope that we have in the gospel of grace. Jesus himself said in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will what? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted by whom? By God. Well, how do you humble yourself? I'd say get on your knees. Confess your sins. The first sin being I'm not God. That would be a good confession. Forgive me, Father, for being, acting, and living as though I'm God. Confess that to God. I mean, bring before Him, bring before the cross all that pride and all that filth, and then look upon a crucified Christ and realize He's God and that He was decimated to overcome your sinful pride. We must see also that the path of pride always ends in death. You can't have a little pride and be okay with it. That little pride of ignorance moves to hatred, and that little pride of hatred always ends in destruction, every time, without exception. It'll destroy your marriage if you allow it. It'll destroy your relationship with your children if you allow it. The worst, the worst case scenario is it destroys your relationship with God. You can't come before God proud. How, how, how can you come before God proud when you see Him clearly in His holiness and you see your own heart? The only truthful way to come before a living God is on our knees, broken. The only way. Christ came so that pride and its end being death would not be our end. Christ came what? Christ, he came that we might have life and have it how? And have it abundantly. That's why he came. That's what he desires. I pray that you will learn from the Jews that were there, even his own brothers, learn from their mistakes. They, they rejected his grace. They rejected the mercy. I pray that you will go to the word and you will take the word and you will stop being so prideful when you read the word. Start with the Bible like this. Before you read, say, Lord, humble me that I might hear you. Humble me. Because I just want to read stuff in. We don't want to shape the word. We want the word to shape us. But in order to do that, you've you got to take it off your shelf, my beloved. You've got to take it off the nightstand. You've got to take it out more than a Sunday morning when the, when the pastor tells you to turn to John chapter 7. You've got to take it out. You've got to read it. You've got to read it. You've got to hear you got to have God speak to you, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, repent and believe and submit to it. Daily, daily submission, daily humility, coming before God. you got to hear Christ. you got to hear Him talk. He, he's the one. God sent Him. He had the right message. He has the power to save. That's why He sent the Holy Spirit. None of that is possible if you remain prideful. None of it. We're going to take communion. Pastor Kurt's going to come up. We're going to take communion. 
And he's going to read a passage from Philippians where it talks about how Christ humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And as you hear that passage being read, I want you to ask yourself one question. If God himself humbled himself to the point of death on a cross that I might be saved, what right do I have, do we have, does anybody have to be proud in anything? If Christ humbled himself, we have none. It is utter foolishness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would forgive us for our pride. Forgive me, forgive our church. So much pride still. I ask, Father, for you to humble us. Make us humble that you might exalt us. At this very moment, Lord, at this very moment, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, take such a prideful, stiff-necked people like we and humble us before your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might not only know him as Lord and Savior, but then walk in a manner that is pleasing to you. We ask these things in his glorious name. Amen.